This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And just like that, we're back. Another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast, Tuesday, July 20th, year of our Lord 2021, jam-packed as jam-packed can be. Really liking the new format, got some good feedback. So the new format is I kind of interwind the housekeeping news and notes throughout the podcast. We dive right in. This is a college football mailbag. We do it Tuesday and Thursday morning. Joshpate706 at gmail.com. If you want to email a question, at Late Kick Josh, Twitter, Instagram, follow and submit via DM questions there. We're going to kick it off with something that about 20 of you have asked me about just as I was sitting down to record. And uh, it's it's not easy for me. I want to want to put that out there. This is not easy for me. Some people love saying I told you so. I only kind of like saying I told you so. Let me hit you with this. Ross Dellinger, who works for Sports Illustrated, has really done a good job of covering things like the whole COVID situation last year, he was really, really on the forefront with a lot of the information, but he's also at the forefront and is well-sourced on this whole college football playoff story. So he put out a story earlier this morning that was talking about the Rose Bowl and will they budge in this whole thing? And if they won't, is there a workaround or is the college football collective powers that be infrastructure, are they ready to just move on and say, well, we can do this with you or we can do this without you? Then that's what the story was about. But there was a bigger takeaway, sort of an Easter egg that was hidden in there. And so Ross Dellinger tweets this morning, some news in that story unrelated to the Rose Bowl. Bob Bowlesby, who, by the way, is the Big 12 commissioner, Bob Bowlesby tells SI now that college football playoff leaders have discussed incorporating more bowl games into an expanded playoff. Now, let me pause. And I want you, before I continue, to think to yourself, does this sound like a good thing? Does this sound like a bad thing? Remember, a lot of you were excited about an expanded playoff. Not your boy, but a lot of you were excited. And one of the reasons you were excited, which in and of itself I did not have a problem with, was you thought this means we're finally going to get a bunch of playoff games on campus. And that does sound great. Again, in and of itself, I continue. Instead of first-round games on campus, according to Bowlesby, They would play them at bowl sites, just like the quarterfinals. That is certainly an option, quote unquote, from Bob Bowlesby. A lot of you wanted to know what I thought about that. Well, guess what I think about it? Because I want to ask a follow-up question. What do you think about it? Because you know I've never been on board with the playoff. So none of this even surprises me. If anything, I'm watching this happen and I'm shaking my head going, yep, that's exactly what I expected. Just like down the road when we see the first players opt out of playoff games, which right now is just unfathomable, but will be an occurrence that happens down the road because you are expanding the quantity, therefore decreasing the value of a postseason spot. When that happens, I'll shake my head and I'll say, yep, That's also what I expected. I expect this too. 
This is not a good thing for college football. It never has been. It's never been about the health of the sport, although that's how they sold it to you. It's never been about more fan enjoyment, although that's how they sold it to you. And it's never been about what's best for the players, although that's how they sold it to you. It's no different than watching your local politician get out on the trail and try and stump to get a bill passed. They tell you what they know you want to hear in hopes that you don't dive in and do your own critical analysis and find out, wow, this is just for the betterment of the few at the expense of the many, and those few are the ones that have already been elected. This thing is no different, but they sold some of you on it. And one of the things, one of the bright, shiny objects out there that they've used to sell you on it is all these home campus playoff games. Now, I have been in agreement with you guys on that concept. Home playoff games would be awesome. Even if I'm against an expanded playoff, If we get it, we get it. And once we get it, obviously, I'd love the home atmosphere for a playoff game. But the point is, that whole concept does not jibe, which I only recently learned is the correct pronunciation. It's not jibe. It doesn't jibe with what the overall goal here is. The goal has never been about a better fan or player experience. They couldn't care less about you. They don't associate with you. They don't identify with you. And when I say they, to be clear, I'm talking about the actual decision makers at this table. They are not you. They are not me. They are. They share nothing in common with us. They certainly share nothing in common with the players. There is no fan or player representation at this table, nor will there ever be, because it's not built for us. It's not built for players. It's built for suits. It's built for the bow tie crowd. They associate with you and try and message to you just long enough to get public sentiment on the side of whatever it is they need pushed forward, and then they're ghosts again. Again, a lot like your local politician. You see them about every two or four years when they need you, just like right now this conversation piece is out there because they need public sentiment, they need public support, they need enough of it. It's not like we're going to vote on it as a college football electorate, but they need enough of it. And so they're going to get it. They are going to get it. I've even seen in my inbox a disproportionate pro-to-anti-college football playoff expansion crowd. I've just always tried to warn you, I'll go with the flow. I'm going to cover the game regardless. We're going to make the show great regardless. But I've always tried to warn you, you are being sold something that is not reality. These people are selling you that this is what's best for the game. And the, the playoff, for example, is the thing that has caused the current problem in college football. And that problem being imbalance. That's not what's caused it. I have gone over this in parade detail. The imbalance in college football is not solved by expansion of playoff. It is not solved by the portal. It's not solved by NIL. It's not solved by any of that. I'm not necessarily anti-portal or anti-NIL like I am playoff expansion, but I'm telling you this does not solve the issues you think it solves. Some of you, I'm speaking blanketly, some of you think it solves that. Now, I respect your opinion. It's not like I think you're dumb because you believe something that I don't believe. This is not that kind of show. But I say all that to say, just keep watching for this little drip, drip, drip out of the faucet. See, they kind of got your public sentiment. They've already floated it out there, and that is a classic PR tactic for any of you who have taken a PR 101 or marketing class. This is how it works. They'll use a lot of fancy terminology, a lot of fancy nomenclature to make it sound like they are thinking on a higher level than the rest of us. But really, what's happening is a bunch of people get in a room, and there is a PR firm there that's being paid ridiculous amounts of money per hour to tell them very commonsensical things. And one of the commonsensical things they say is, all right, You guys have a plan. The reality of it is it is not congruent with what most people want. The end game does not match up. But you guys in this room 
need everyone out there to think that you're in lockstep with them, that you're really trying to serve them with what they want, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what we need, PR firm. How do we do it? Well, of course, you have to shape and control narrative, or it controls you. Even Michael Scott in the office taught you that with the press conference they had from the obscene watermark. And so here is what the PR firm tells them. You all have sources you go to. You all have friendly reporters you go to. So you just need to float some ideas out there. Make it sound off the cuff. Make it sound totally extemporaneous and just kind of mention it in passing. For instance, mention that, oh, we may have to have college football bowl sites be the hosts for even the quarterfinals. Just float it out there. And then it'll get reported because that's what reporters do. And it'll get circulated in the college football media ecosystem and then the college football public ecosystem. And you can just gauge it publicly. We'll do it for you. You are paying us after all. So we'll put forth all of our proprietary metrics, which in reality is just us using the calculator. And we will judge how the public's reacting. And if you get 60-40 approval, 75-25 approval, then you're good to go. And we'll bring those results back to you. And all's well that ends well, you can move forward with that measure. However, if you get overwhelming negative feedback and anyone presses you on it, all you have to do is say, no, 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 that wasn't an official proposal. I was just kind of speaking off the cuff. It's one of many ideas. You ever heard that phrasing? This is one of many ideas that we're considering. Nah, if it's floated, I can assure you it's the idea. Now, there is a counter strategy here. The counter strategy is also maybe you've already arrived at a conclusion. Bud Elliott, for instance, hopped in my uh, mentions today and he said this, and I mentioned it in another vein a few months ago. This is very much a possibility. What Bud said is, I think what may be happening here, according to someone I talked to within a conference, is they've already arrived at what they want in terms of a format and what they are going to at least settle on in terms of a format. And that may be quarterfinals, so the first round on home campuses, but then the second round, third round and championship on bowl site. So in other words, a lot of the initial pushback was, wait a second. So if you get a buy, if you're a one, two, three or four seed currently with the proposal that's been floated out there with the quarterfinals on home sites. So the five, six, seven, eight versus the nine, 10, 11 and 12, those will be on home sites. But then the next round, semifinal and championship games would all be at neutral sites. One of the first noticeably and obvious pieces of pushback the public had was, so if I'm a one seed, I'm never going to get a home game? If I'm a four seed, I'm never going to get a home game? Yeah, it's great that we get the first round by, but how much sense does it make to not have the second round on campus too? Well, they heard that, but here is what could be happening. What could be happening is they do have some wiggle room with that first round. They do not have wiggle room. They cannot get the Bulls on board if they do not give them at least that second round version of games at the bowl sites. And so what they could be doing is they could be floating out a preposterous idea of just having all the playoff games at neutral sites, knowing all the while they're going to backtrack on it. But by the time they backtrack on it, it sounds like a concession. It sounds like they can come to the forefront and say, well, we did consider it, but you know, the public pushed back so much and we love our fans and we listen to them. And so, you know what? We are going to give you the first round on campus and we'll take the second round. How about that? The second round games, those will be neutral site. Knowing all the while, that's what you were going with to begin with. It is something that happens in salary negotiation all the time. It's something that happens when you are a parent trying to negotiate with children all the time. And make no mistake, that is about the relationship these people view themselves as having with you. Parent and child. Adult and child. So to answer your question, I'm not a fan of it, but I'm not surprised by it. I um, 
watching along with the rest of you to see where this goes. I do not think there are a lot of people who are fully informed on this. I think there are people who have morsels or portions of information, but I don't think that very many people are fully read into all of the moving parts. And make no mistake, there are many of them. Okay, let's let's move on. I said I didn't want to talk about playoff, and I just talked about it for 10 minutes to start the podcast. You want some good news? Does everyone want some good news? Yes, let's get some good news. So I opened up the spreadsheet this morning that is exclusive and confidential for 24-7 Sports. So naturally, allow me to share some of the details. I opened it up, and Lance has freshly updated our statistics and our podcast, Late Kick, just the podcast product, not the YouTube, is up 19% month over month. So we grew our audience by a fifth over the last month. Again, in the middle of what outsiders would deem the off-season. So if I were to go and rent billboards in every major town in America and just write thank you from JP to you, it still would not convey my sense of appreciation. So thank you. I get emails constantly from you guys, first off, giving me questions, which we're about to get to. But then also a lot of the follow-up lately has been, here's how many people I've got listening to you now. And we've got aunts, we got friends, we got coworkers. I really love the stories where we're just being listened to on the job, at the work site or in the office. I know that's not always possible, but case by case, depending on where you work, and even if you can't do it where you work, thank you for spreading the word. We appreciate it. As a result, you are about to be getting a lot more of what you've been asking for. So thank you. Be careful what you wish for. More of me can be dangerous, but thank you so much for that. All right, let's dive into the mailbag this morning. Robert said, I know you got a lot of content right now, but I was hoping that you could talk about the targeting rule and what changes you would make to the rule. Well, Robert, this is the content, brother, so never hesitate to send a question in. I do not like the way the targeting rule is currently enforced. I don't think anyone does. When's the last time anyone heard someone speak positively about the way targeting is enforced in college football? It's bad. The spirit of the rule is good. So you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but the way it's enforced right now, especially now that we've got several years of case study under our belt, has to be evolved and it has to be adapted with some common sense mixed in. Here's common sense to me. When you and I are watching a college football game, we know when a malicious hit has just happened. We know when an egregious foul has occurred and when someone should be automatically ejected from a game. We know that because it doesn't happen very much. Now, you may have just incidental speed of the game, helmet to helmet contact, which does constitute targeting. And I don't have a problem with the flag being thrown. I get frustrated because I like to see hard nosed defensive back play. But at the same time, I'm a realist. I know where we are. But the difference in that versus an intentionally malicious act, I mean, those are two different worlds. And right now, we just do not distinguish. We're throwing flags, garden variety, and we're ejecting guys on the first strike, which is insane. And so right now, I know they changed the review policy. I'd love to see the structure of the rule changed. I'd love to see it a lot more in line with what a personal foul is, where if you get a personal foul, you're not out of the game. Now, you're on the clock. You get a second one, and it's a different set of penalties. But when you have an incidental, I would call them intentional and incidental targeting. And I would, you may, maybe you want to differentiate what kind of yardage the penalty is. I, I wouldn't even go that far. I mean, 15 yards is 15 yards. I'm talking about the ejection mechanism that's attached to the rule. Ejecting a kid right now for something he had no intention of doing, and in, in some cases has to do a lot more with what the ball carrier did with his body than the defender did with his body. Ejecting a kid over that is ludicrous. And you've got entire seasons. You've got games and seasons being impacted by a kid doing what he's coached to do in a lot of cases. He's not coached to lead with the crown of his head. 
But not everyone being ejected for targeting is leading with the crown of his head. Not everyone being ejected for targeting is even doing anything wrong. And I've never been able to square that. So, yeah, I would love to see that rule changed, Robert. And I'm surprised we haven't seen more traction with it. I'm very surprised we haven't. Christian is up next. Where do you think Dabo Swinney will be in 10 years? Will he go to the NFL? Will he remain at Clemson? Or the million-dollar question, does he succeed Nick Saban at Alabama, assuming Nick Saban is immortal and not at Alabama by then? Christian, there is a D here. What if Dabo is not in football in 10 years? Dabo Swinney has always struck me as a guy who, um, he's a great football coach now. He's, he's one of the very best in the game. People think I hate on him because I didn't put him number two in my future head coach desirability rankings, I guess you would call it. Well, I put him at number three, people. It's not that big of a vault from number two to number three. I'm just very high on the future of Ryan Day. Not the resume, the future of Ryan Day. But Dabo is one of the best. But I've always sensed about him, there may be something else down the road when he looks at his horizon, in other words. I don't know if he sees football as far as the eye can see. He is a football lifer to this point, but that's looking in reverse. I don't know if when Dabo looks ahead that he sees football from here until the end of his time on earth. Now, he may, uh, but I think there is a D option. Now, I'm not going to go as far as to say he's not around in 10 years. I'm saying that could be included as one of the multiple choice. I My best guess is he's still at Clemson. That's the only thing I have to go on. I hear the NFL rumors. I do not think that Dabo Swinney would enjoy the NFL very much. I don't know about the Alabama thing either. I Only he knows that. You talk to people and everyone close to those programs or close to Dabo Swinney, they claim to have an angle on it. I know multiple people close to Dabo Swinney. I don't even think they know. Because really, I don't think he knows. Think about your own life there, Christian, or anyone else listening. Think about your own life. There is no better source for your life than you, right? How many times have you been in a situation? Because I can tell you I have personally been in a situation where you've got some professional or personal or both decisions to make, and you yourself change your mind several times. You could three months ago look at what you thought about potentially taking a new job versus what you think about it today, and things may have totally changed. So my point there is, if you and I go through that, then it stands to reason Dabo Swinney probably goes through that too, right? And then couple that with the fact that he is never talking about it publicly. So any information you get about him has to be secondhand or thirdhand or, or 15th hand. And how much less informed are those people even than Dabo would be? And how unsure may Dabo be? So I don't think there is a skilled way to answer this. My guess, and that's all it is, would be Clemson. Sean, up next. I heard Dan Mullen mention that the SEC should eliminate permanent cross-division rivals. Many of you asked about this, by the way. Sean continues, To me, that's the worst possible solution to not playing cross-division opponents in a short enough time span. It seems like the easiest solution is to have nine conference games with two rotational games and one permanent rival. Here's the big conundrum in the SEC. It's been this way for a while. They have some cross-division rivalries they want to maintain. You've got Georgia, and Auburn. You've got Alabama and Tennessee. You've got Florida, LSU, and they play those games every year. And the current structure of the league conference schedule is you play your six division opponents, and then you play your one permanent crossover rival, and then you rotate one other crossover. Well, what that does is it creates a situation where you go like a decade in between playing some teams from the other side of the conference. And if you consider the home and home aspect, you go, according to the current system, decade plus 
without playing in some venues. Texas A&M came to the SEC in 2012. Georgia has still never played at Kyle Field, and they're not playing there this year either. So that is unacceptable to a lot of people, myself included. Now, two of the proposals are either expand to nine games, nine conference games, so you add in a second rotational game. You keep the format, you just add in a second rotational game, or the other is you do away with the cross-division permanent rivals So you play your six division games, and then the other two are rotational. A lot of people down here on the fan and media side of things have for a long time advocated for expanding to nine conference games. Nick Saban has been a vocal proponent for expanding to nine conference games. There has been very little traction among the rest of the SEC head coaches for expanding to nine conference games. I'm not speaking ill of them because I'm not so sure I wouldn't be the same way if I were them. This is where the uneasiness in how we determine strength of schedule seeps in. Now, I know I'm talking about a lot of concepts here, but it's really basic. A lot of these guys down here, especially as head coaches, they look around and they say, our league is the toughest league year in and year out to play in in the country. And the goal for us is to make a playoff game. The goal is to win the conference, make a playoff game. That's what we all set out to do every year. We're watching the playoff selection process. And we are watching teams be treated based on their record, really independent of what the strength of schedule is. I mean, Jimbo Fisher's at Texas A&M. He's got to play Alabama every year. See, people look at the cupcake games they play and don't realize they're more than made up for by the conference, even division games they play. Jimbo Fisher looks around and says, hold up a second. You mean to tell me we lost one game in the regular season to what ended up being the national champion and probably the best team of all time. At very least, they're in the conversation in Alabama. And that's all it took for us to be ranked outside the playoff and behind Notre Dame? The same Notre Dame team went on to get beat by Alabama. The only difference is they were in the playoff. Well, the point is, you can get into the semantics. The SEC teams look around and they say, as long as people are just going to judge us based off record and they're not going to take into account the nuance of strength of schedule in college football, why would we ever challenge ourselves voluntarily more than we have to? Now, if you were to change the structure and you were to say, We're going to account for strength of schedule properly, which is not just wins and losses. It's more of a Vegas power ranking style metric. If you were to do that, they'd be a little more open to it. That's also the reason why this expanded playoff has come with an increase in talk about expanding to a nine-game conference schedule in the SEC. And a lot of these SEC teams are scheduling tougher out-of-conference games. Once there are more playoff spots, they're not as scared to schedule those big games. Now, you may say to me, well, Josh, doesn't that counter your own argument? Don't you say that it will decrease the value of the regular season if you increase the amount of college football playoff spots? Yes, I do say that. I'm all for more marquee out-of-conference games. I will enjoy that. I'm not saying there are no good aspects of an expanded playoff. I'm saying the risk outweighs the reward. Those certainly are rewards. What I'm asking you is, what makes those rare in-season out-of-conference games so exciting? What makes a big in-season conference game so exciting, for that matter? To me, in college football, it's because there is no safety net, or there's a very thin safety net under those games. You're watching with bated breath. You're watching on the edge of your seat. You'll watch Ohio State-Oregon in Week 2 this year, probably because you know the loser has a much fainter shot of making the playoff, and they certainly remove all their margin for error if they lose that game. Well, that makes those games must-see television. When you expand the safety net under those games, you may get more of them, but you don't have the same consequence. You don't have the same stakes on the line. And so it certainly will still be fun to watch. 
but it will not have the same feel. There will be entertainment. You'll see good athlete against good athlete, but the subtext, the backdrop with which those games are played in front of, that feels different. You cannot manufacture that regular season do or die environment that is totally unique to college football if it's not there organically. And the only organic way to keep it there is to keep the regular season at the forefront of what's special about college football. You can't do that with an expanded playoff. So again, there are some positives to expansion. There, I'm not pretending there aren't. I just think there are more positives to keeping it the way it is. But having said that, to go back to the question, yes, I do think that this will answer itself. So I think, Sean, you were to ask about what option is best. I think there will be more people on board with adopting a nine-game conference schedule in the SEC in the near future because of an expanded playoff. David up next. David said, how much does Miami need to have a good showing week one, especially as it pertains to their recruiting efforts? How much are they at risk of being the next Bama opener casualty like USC or worse, 2017 Florida State? The 17 Florida State opener, that truly was a travesty. I was on the field right in the end zone where play was happening right in front of me. And it was the waning minutes. And Alabama had, I mean, Florida State had fought them. They didn't get blown out 52 to 6 like Southern Cal did. But they had been handled physically. But at the very end of that game, remember DeAndre Francois, week one, it's a top three matchup, and DeAndre Francois goes down to a season-ending injury. I think it was Ronnie Harrison that tackled him. And he goes down to a season-ending injury, and that Florida State season just goes off the rails entirely. And I, that's injury-related, so there's no way to predict injury. It is always important to have a good showing in week one. However, I don't necessarily know that it's imperative for Miami you know, to hang in the fourth quarter with Alabama in order to still achieve what they want to achieve. Because I think the goal for Miami this year is to compete in the conference and make it to the conference championship game. If you do that, you'll let the chips fall where they may. Well, nothing about the Alabama game matters in terms of the ACC race. Now, what can matter is if it shell shots you so much, or you do have some injuries pile up, or it just erases any confidence and makes you so mentally weak that you tiptoe into conference play in a couple of weeks, yes, that can screw you up. So a good start is is essential, and it would very much help recruiting. Now, it's a kind of the second part of this question. Yes, that would very much help recruiting. You just don't want your rivals to be able to go into the living room and say, did you see Miami week one? You claim you want to go play for national championships. Well, did you watch them? They're not close. All due respect to you, you're not going to make a difference there. Now, you can make a difference here. We're not getting blown out by anyone. Of course, we're not playing Alabama week one either, but we're not getting blown out by anyone. So come here. Don't go there. Yes, that's an element here. I just think they need to be able to take positives out of week one. If they can do that, the scoreboard will read what the scoreboard reads. I mean, most people are going to lose to Bama if they play them any given week. Just give me something I can buy. Give me something if I'm on that staff that I can sell as we're headed in the right direction, imagine what would have happened if Miami played Bama two or three years ago, that sort of deal. And that's fine. It's it's not the end of the world if they lose that game, as long as I can draw something positive out of it. Let's continue with Noah. Noah said, do you think Clay Helton could actually be the right coach at USC? He did put together a good season last year and seems to be recruiting well out of high school and in the transfer portal. Noah, I don't think so. I mean, I do not feel that. I would be happy to be wrong because I certainly have nothing against Clay Helton, the person. I love the dude, actually. But I'd be lying to you. If I said I needed to endorse USC right now or not, I couldn't endorse them. They had a good year last year. You're right about that. They had a good year. That's about as far as I'll go. They had a good year. It was shortened, so we don't really know what would have happened in a full season. But then they go to the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, They fumble that opportunity. 
So what did they really do last year? A good season is what they had. Here's the difference. I've got high standards for USC, very high standards. So good is not good enough. If I'm a USC fan, good is not good enough. I I grew up in Georgia and good is not good enough for USC. So if I'm pulling for USC, I'm looking around and I'm watching what Bama does. I'm watching what Ohio State, a lot of the powers to the East, I'm watching what they do. And it doubly aggravates me. They're doing it with our players. But let's stick to the primary point. I'm looking at them and I'm asking myself, do we have the people here currently that we can trade punches with those teams with? If we get in that environment, can we trade punches with them? And Noah, I look in the mirror right now if I'm a USC fan, and I cannot tell myself Clay Helton's that guy. Unless some things change. Unless I just haven't seen the real USC under Clay Helton. Now, you're right. They did some really good things. on In the recruiting world last year, they surprised me. Because after that disastrous cycle two years ago, I mean, I thought that was more than the beginning of the end. And they salvaged it. They did some really good things. They landed the number one player in the country in Corey Foreman. And that's good. That's very good. Don't discount that. I'm not saying you should. And then they really attacked the transfer portal here over this last few months. They brought in nine kids, seven of them rated in our top 100 in the transfer portal rankings. That's another good thing. But I want you to remember that wasn't by choice. That was by necessity. Chris Hummer, about a month ago, did a feature on 247sports.com. He talked to the director of player personnel or director of recruiting, one of the two, with USC. And he was asked that. He was asked about all these these massive amounts of transfers they brought in. And the guy told Hummer, said, we had to do it. It's not like we set it out and that was in our plan. That's in our mission statement every year on the transfer portal. We had to do it. And he's right. They did have to do it. And you know why they had to do it? Because they were a disaster in recruiting two years ago. And that inevitably creates holes down the road that you have to fill. And then you add on top of that guys that transfer out. So they did some good things. They upgraded their running back position, I think. They lost two good options. They brought in two very good options. I think they upgraded there. You're going to see a lot of those guys on the field this year. But I say that, and then I zoom it out, and I think, big picture, does this coaching staff have what it takes to compete against the best in the country? Noah, my answer to that is I don't think so. Here's a really good one from Palmer. I'm going to do the thing where I ask the question and then I'll toss it to our ad break so you can think about it while also you use 50% of your brain to listen to the ad because we love our sponsors around here. Palmer said, do you think that some coaches or programs in college football receive too much praise relative to what they've accomplished over the past decade or so, while some others receive too harsh a criticism relative to those same factors? So you think about that and I'll give you my answer right after this. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. All right, we're back. Palmer, a really good question here. And I'm going to go an angle I want to go with it. And you can go a different angle if you wanted to. So he's asking basically, 
is too much praise and too much criticism thrown out in college football? I, I think incidentally you can say yes. One of the first that comes to mind is Notre Dame. I don't think Notre Dame gets enough credit for what they've done, which just flies in the face of what a lot of people think about Notre Dame. I know that. I talk to you guys all the time, and a healthy amount of my listening audience and viewing audience thinks Notre Dame's overrated. Now, we've gone over this before, so I'm not going to do the whole overrated thing. Well, I will for a second. Notre Dame's not overrated. Notre Dame is the most properly rated program in America right now. I don't think there are very many programs that we have a better read on than Notre Dame. We don't put them ahead of Bama. We don't put them ahead of Clemson. We don't put them ahead of Ohio State. We rank them behind that top tier, which is exactly where Notre Dame should be. The only teams that are handling them are the teams rated ahead of them. That's the complete opposite of being overrated. That's being properly rated. And underrated would be constantly beating teams that are rated ahead of you. Notre Dame is totally properly rated. Here's what I have always been rubbed the wrong way by. Notre Dame gets judged based on the standard of Tier 1, but Notre Dame does not have Tier 1 ability or resources right now. I'm not saying they couldn't one given year win a championship. It'd be very hard for them. But they're being judged to the same standard Clemson is or the same standard Oklahoma or Alabama is. They do not have the advantage that those programs have. So here's what it's like. When I played high school baseball, my junior year, I had an ingrown toenail. I was petrified of surgery. I chose to play the season with an ingrown toenail. And when I say ingrown toenail, I mean it looked like my big toe had frostbite and we needed to amputate it. It was horrific. Just layers of dead skin peeling off. You're welcome. For those of you who listen to this around lunchtime, you're welcome. I'll give you a dead skin warning the next time I'm going to go down that road. But anyway, it was a struggle to run, as you can imagine. I, I would cold spray it before a game, but it thaws pretty quickly. Your toes thaw pretty quickly in a cleat in 95-degree weather in Georgia. And uh, But I just I learned to live with it. And I walked with my weight on the opposite side of my foot, which did wonders for my posture and balance. But I remember I could still run enough. But if anyone in the stands were to know the actual condition I was playing with, they would have praised me like I was Usain Bolt. Because there's no way I should have been able to run or even walk with the condition my toe was in. But the Notre Dame thing right now, when you talk about recruiting and you talk about the advantage they have relative to admissions and academics relative to the big boys down south, they are playing with an ingrown toenail. That's exactly what they're doing. And I think it's miraculous that Brian Kelly has them in contention as often as he does. I think it's miraculous that they are playing what I think is their maximum capability level of football. And they've done it for a few years now. But they're like me. If I were to be put in a race with a bunch of folks back then who also played on the team and we race and they beat me, they don't smoke me, but they beat me consistently. You could look at that one of two ways. You could say, dude, you're so slow. Ben and Seth and Troy, they always beat you. Or I could peel my cleat off and show you this bloody stump of a foot I have. And you could say, wow, it's a miracle that you can even hang with those guys. That's how I look at Notre Dame. I think it is a borderline miracle and a huge testament to how good Brian Kelly is that they even find themselves on the same pace with those teams. That's how I view Notre Dame. I think Malzahn got a raw deal when he was at Auburn because I think Malzahn had the unfortunate task of playing four top six or seven recruiting powers every year on average in Georgia, Bama, LSU, Texas A&M. I don't think anyone would have survived that. I think it is a borderline miracle that Gus Malzahn was the one that beat Nick Saban more so than anyone else did and gave him nightmares even when they didn't beat him. And so I think a lot more criticism was thrown at Gus Malzahn than was deserved. And the case study on that's going to be UCF. Because he fell down at U... Well, he didn't fall anywhere. He 
he some would say he elevated to UCF because it's a more desirable job. You get the you get the opportunity, you get the recruiting grounds. He'll end up making enough money, and he already makes enough money with the buyout at Auburn anyway. And you don't have that Saban pressure, you don't have that SEC pressure, but you get all the perks. The case study will be how good does he do at UCF? Because it's the same Malzahn, it's the same offense. He'll have the same approach. Do they start dominating AAC? Do they start perennially contending for the title in that conference? If they do, you'll realize he was underrated here. He just had an insurmountable task given the current landscape of the SEC. So I think that's the case. I'll tell you another thing. I think Kirby Smart gets too much criticism. I thought Mark Richt when he was at Georgia got too much criticism towards the latter stages of his career. And the way I look at that is I judge the level a coach is performing at. I do not judge them based off championships. When I'm saying I judge them at the level they're at, I think about this. If I go back to the 2017 title game or the 2012 SEC championship game, those were two games where one play at the very end of the game, you could argue, cost Georgia a national title or an SEC title and a shot at a title they would have won because I think Georgia would have handled Notre Dame in 2012. My point is those coaches didn't change because of those plays. If Devontae Smith drops the touchdown pass against Georgia in 2017, and Bama loses the game, and they miss a field goal at the end of regulation. Kirby Smart's the same coach, but he has a national championship in his trophy case, and he's totally immune to criticism now. What changed? All that changed is a trophy. I know that's everything in the sport, guys. I understand we're playing this thing for a championship. I get that. So it's a very big deal. But when we're judging the relative operation level a coach is at, it's the same. It's not like you're at 50,000 feet when you win a title, and you're only at 28,000 feet when you don't. You are who you are as a coach. It's the same with Rick in 2012. So I think the disproportionate praise to criticism ratio that we dole out relative to whether you want a title or not, that in reality just comes down to a bounce of the ball here and there. I think that's all out of whack too. Next up is Robert. He said, will NIL make my LSU season ticket prices go up, G-E-A-U-X, up and unaffordable like the NFL ticket prices? I'm not sure that will happen, Robert. Now, I'm interested where you're going with that. Here's one school of thought. Now, I don't know what the answer is to this. You guys can tell me what you think the answer is. So Robert's asking, will NIL make my season ticket prices go up? Now, you may be thinking to yourself as you're driving around, where are we driving today? If you're driving around in Richmond, Virginia, or you're driving around in Lubbock, Texas, go Red Raiders, or maybe you're in Gwin, Alabama. Gwin, Alabama. If you want to do some fascinating research, why don't you Google Gwin, G-U-I-N, Alabama. Really small town. It's about, it's a little ways north of Tuscaloosa. It's south of Muscle Shoals or Mushoals, as we've uh, documented on this show. Research the Gwin, Alabama tornado from the super outbreak of 1974. There are people out there who think it may have been the strongest tornado in the continental United States history. We just don't have a way to accurately measure that because, again, it happened in 1974. But anyway, wherever you're listening, thank you. So maybe you're riding around in those towns or any other town or overseas because we have a lot of international listeners. Let's get back on track here. And you're thinking to yourself, how could NIL affect ticket prices? Here's one school of thought. that we It's still too early, so I don't know if this is the way it's going to go. But one school of thought is as NIL becomes a thing, then a lot of these big companies that right now – advertise in the stadium. You see a lot of billboards, a lot of banners, a lot of ad reads over the PA system in the stadium. What if they take those advertising dollars and what they would have spent with the school, they now spend it directly with the athlete? Well, the university, it stands to reason, has to make up that lost revenue somehow. 
So what if they choose to jack up ticket prices? I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility, Robert, but I don't think that's the way it's going to go either. The way I think this is going to go is I think the bigger corporate sponsors like Golden Flake potato chips or Coca-Cola or, or Ford, I mean, that big money that's always partnered with the school, I think it always will partner with the school. Ditto for the broadcast you watch. I think Aflac is always going to be Aflac across a litany of college football broadcasts. What I think this does is it opens the door for more tier three, tier four, tier five type advertising companies, companies that you never would have seen because they never could afford from an advertising perspective to sit at the college football table. I do not think this is going to be a big thing. No, Robert, I don't think your season tickets are going up unless LSU just decides to jack it up. And speaking of which, from Death Valley to Death Valley, Brennan says, a couple. Of, he has three questions here, so I'm going to rapid fire him. Do you believe Clemson's best days are yet to come? I believe we're right in the middle of Clemson's best days. I cannot look back in the rearview mirror and see two titles and say it'll get better, but I'm certainly not looking ahead and saying, oh, I see worse things on the horizon. I talked about this a lot on the Sunday show. If you guys didn't see that, I would encourage you to go to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, find it, and by the way, subscribe while you're there. Still, 68% of our viewers are not subscribed. So you're watching but not subscribing. I'm probably speaking to the choir here, but if you know anyone who hasn't, hack into their computer, do what you have to do, subscribe to the channel because we are pushing rapidly towards 60,000 subs there. Again, it just helps us do more of what you want us to do, the better our numbers get. The second thing Brennan asked is, will a Clemson player ever win the Heisman? Yes, there's no skill in predicting it, but yes, I think they will. And the third one is, why is nobody talking about Clemson being one snap away from disaster this year? Now, this, Brennan, is an underrated aspect of your submission and an underreported aspect of the entire college football picture this year, the ACC, the college football playoff, everything. DJ Uyangalale is the guy at the forefront. He's the starting quarterback for Clemson. There's no question about that. But behind him, they got little to nothing in terms of proven experience. And I don't think it's the depth situation that Oklahoma has, for example, where if Spencer Rattler gets a hangnail, well, we got Caleb Williams ready to go. That's only the number one quarterback in the country from this last cycle, who a lot of people thought looked the best out of the two in the spring game. No quarterback controversy, mind you. Just they have a very enviable depth situation. Ohio State has that, for example. I think Jalen Milrow will rapidly rise up the ranks at Alabama. Keep an eye on that name in the future. So some of those other contending, perennial contender type teams, they have quarterbacks that in an emergency situation they would be comfortable with, especially at OU and Ohio State. At Clemson, they don't have that. So what Brennan's saying is you could turn the TV on and then you could go in the kitchen to grab a snack and you come back in. And again, we don't ever root for injury. I don't even like talking about it. But if it were to happen because it's part of the game, that is your season. I mean, that that alters Clemson's season, but also think about what else it does. I mean, that opens the door in the ACC because at that point, there would be other contenders in the ACC. So yes, this is something to pay attention to. It also asks and even begs the question, does that change the way they use DJ? He is a Mack truck. He's a tank. So you would think, I mean, we would use his legs some and we would use the ability to fall forward. I remember Cam Newton brilliantly used to be able to do that. He was just physically superior. And so even if you stuffed him at the line of scrimmage or so you thought, well, he ends up gaining three yards when the pile cleans up because he fell forward every play. All DJ's got to do is fall forward half the time. Well, how comfortable are you doing that when you know what the risk is? Because it's disproportionately high for Clemson this year. So that is, Brennan, absolutely something to pay attention to. Here's another thing to pay attention to. Make sure you're following Twitter and Instagram. 
at late kick Josh. The numbers are spiking there. Our numbers are spiking everywhere. And I know why, and I thank you for it. And it's only going to ramp up tenfold. Well, maybe not exactly tenfold, maybe fivefold once we get into August. Beat the rush. Do it now. Let me tell you what we have coming. We we have some things coming I can't tell you quite yet. You will know when they happen, though. They're all going to be good. It's nothing bad. So there's that, and that's about all I can tell you, so you're welcome. But then the other thing we have is we're about to take Late Kick Live to three days a week. That's probably happening in the first week of August, so that's not far away. And so we'll have that. I'm still trying to figure out how I want to do the q and I think I'll still do a Thursday mailbag, but I'm, I'm toying with a couple of different ideas. So I'll tell you what. You guys let me know if you have an idea for how you'd like to see the week structured. Let me know. Right now, as you know, I do Sunday night and Thursday night live. So you get it Monday morning as a podcast and Friday morning as a podcast. And then Tuesday and Thursday mornings, I've been doing the mailbag, which you're listening to right now, which is just podcast. You have to be here or you don't get it. Well, once we add in the Tuesday show, that literally means you're getting something every morning. So Monday morning, if you're looking at the podcast feed, you have last night's replay. Tuesday morning, mailbag. Wednesday morning, Tuesday night's replay. Thursday morning, mailbag. Friday morning, Thursday night's replay. So it works out that way. That's the way we did it last year. Uh, People seemed happy with it. Is that the way we want to do it this year? Or is there another product that you would like to see once a week that replaces one of those mailbags? Do you want the Thursday night live show on YouTube to be a mailbag? There are many different things we can do with that. I'm very interested to get some feedback. We call it good old-fashioned market research. And the other thing to keep in mind, I might as well start putting out this call to action now. There were about a dozen of you last year that had emailed me and said, hey, if you ever have anything that you need help with for the show, I would like to make myself available. I know it's not a paid spot or anything. I just like to participate in some shape, form, or fashion. If you're interested in doing that, email me. I'm not going to put the roles out there publicly. Those of you who participated last year know what we're talking about here. There are some things that I have to have done week to week. Uh, They're pretty involved. You do get a little behind the scenes, behind the curtain peak of the show, but it helps out. But I only need serious candidates. I only need people who know that they have a couple of hours every week that they can dedicate to this and they do it the entire season. So if you want to potentially get involved with that, hit me up if you're in anything from data and statistics to just loving research to, hey, I watch the games anyway. I might as well do something while I'm watching them. And if you watch every episode of Late Kick, any of you who fit those descriptions, email me, joshpate706 at gmail.com. That's about a wrap for us here. I'm about to send this off to Jordan. He'll get it cut up, sent out to you. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Late Kick Extra Podcast. I'm Josh Pate. God bless. Have a great rest of your day. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts.